Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Points of View podcast. On this episode, you'll hear musicologist Jim Steichen in conversation with principal conductor and music director for San Francisco Ballet, Martin West. This discussion was recorded on March 15, 2017, before a triple bill performance of Yuri Posakov's Fusion, Arthur Pita's Salome, and Liam Scarlett's Fearful Symmetries. Hope you enjoy. Hi, good evening, welcome. Thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Jim Steichen. I'm a musicologist by training, and I currently teach at Stanford University for a program called Italic, which is a, an interdisciplinary arts program for freshmen. We study uh, ballet and opera and visual art and photography, all kinds of things. Um, and just last week, uh, my colleague and I were here with a couple, uh, group of students for the Balanchine program, so it's a pleasure to be back here so soon. So with, with that out of the way, it's my great pleasure to be here with Martin West, a music director and principal conductor for the San Francisco Ballet. Evening. Thank you. Uh, Martin's from England, as you'll hear from his tone of voice very soon if you don't, haven't heard him talk already. Um, he trained at London's Royal Academy of Music and also for a brief while in St. Petersburg. He debuted in 1997 with the English National Ballet and was immediately snatched up by them uh, to conduct for them, and he's um, never left the ballet world since. Um, he's conducted for the New York City Ballet, for the National Ballet of Canada, and the Royal Ballet, in addition to um, his duties here in San Francisco. He's uh, been responsible for overseeing several recordings and DVDs here um, during his tenure at the San Francisco Ballet. So thank you for being with us today. You're very welcome. Um, so just to let you know, so let me get my clicker all set. Um, I divided up our time today into three parts. First, we're going to um, talk about some questions and perhaps some misconceptions about contemporary music and ballet. That's our subject uh, for today um, in, a, in anticipation of tonight's program. Um, then we'll go a little more in-depth into tonight's composers, all the different music that we'll be hearing tonight. And then finally, we'll have time for your questions. So um, first off, some questions. Um, so Martin, what counts as contemporary music and ballet? How would you define it? And do you find that a useful label to categorize music for ballet? Um, well, obviously, contemporary is would be uh, pieces written in the in the near past, I would say, um, or even just directly for the the, the production itself. Um, is it useful a label? Not not necessarily. I think it's possible to do uh, contemporary ballet to traditional music and and vice versa as well. You can take all the music and uh, you know do all sorts of things with it. So, what the choreographer uh, comes up with in his own mind as an inter interpretation of the music is the paramount thing. So contemporary ballet doesn't necessarily go in hand in hand with contemporary music. Right. Right. No, absolutely. I think um, it's always important to remind ourselves that, you know, all ballet music was once contemporary music and also vice versa that, you know. Um, well, yeah, ballet came out of, you know, the opera in, in France all those years ago and they were writing music as as it you know, uh, uh, 
bespoke music for the for the for the dancers there and then. You know, they were asked to make a variation for Giselle uh, because the person who was doing it wanted a special variation. So um, uh, Minkus went and wrote a piece of music there and then, and they performed it the next night. You know, that's, that's as contemporary as you get there. Yeah, ex- exactly. Um, uh, we'll move on. Um, so. I think there's a common conception or perhaps misconception that contemporary music is more difficult um, for listeners, for conductors, maybe for for choreographers and dancers. Um, so what do you think about that? And how is it different to prepare contemporary music to compare preparing something like Swan Lake or... Um... Uh, yeah, well, there's a lot of questions there. Um, so let's, let's go back to the beginning. Um, is contemporary music more difficult? Often it is more difficult, yeah. And in any art form, as, we, as the art form has progressed and got older, uh, the composers, choreographers, artists, they have new techniques which they use. And often these techniques, by the very nature of being new, are more difficult. Uh, and things that were impossible just a few years ago are now thought as a standard Fair, you know. So when, for instance, when um, uh, Stravinsky wrote Rite of Spring back in 1913, Pierre Monteur had 19 at rehearsals, 57 hours of rehearsal with the orchestra. Now, we, when we do it, uh, we have it maybe six, if, if that, maybe three probably, because it's now standard repertoire. The difficulties that are inherent in that piece for them only 100 years ago are now considered to be standard rep. And so people write, when people write music, the, the, the technique of the players and, and new sounds have been invented, as it were, new, new ideas, a way of playing the instruments. They become, the, the, the language is expanded. So, same with choreographers, you know. No one ever used to be able to do a triple, a triple soda bass, but people can do them now. And no doubt in 25 years, if you don't do a triple soda bass, you won't get a job. You know, that's the kind of thing that happens. Yeah. So um, it, 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 is, it is more difficult. It's more challenging, uh, depending on the type of contemporary music as well. It, it, uh, it, it can be very challenging to play for uh, just technically getting around the notes that he's written. Other times it's just difficult because the conception of the orchestra is so huge. Fitting it all together is also very difficult. One, a good question, a good piece for that as an example, is tonight's Fearful Symmetries, which is a pretty big orchestra, and it, everybody's doing something different all the time. So we're trying to line up a whole bunch of people. If you listen, going back to your Swan Lake answer, so I'm talking a lot here, yeah. uh, you know, there's one tune, there's one bass line, and then there's the middle parts, that, you know, and maybe rhythm. But that's it. Whereas in this piece, there'll be five or six really ra- very different things going on all at once, not necessarily related to each other, which you all have to line up very carefully. Yeah, have you ever um, received a score that was new to you and you just stared at it and thought... Oh, oh I do that all the time, okay. yeah. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get around that? or how do You, you know, because um, <clears throat> you're often... There's no recordings of these new pieces for you to listen to. No. Um, often we do a lot of new work here. There's no recordings at all. Sometimes we hear a MIDI file of it, so we have sort of a computer mock-up, and it gives you some idea of, of, of what's going on. Um, the, the only way to do it is, is the old-fashioned way. You just stare at the piece, and you just uh, 
to try and sing it to yourself, try and imagine how things are going together, try and get a sweep of the piece, see what it's like, you know, go this way. And then, you know, I don't know if you know how a score is set up, but every member of the orchestra has their own line. So you have a flute, first flute, second flute, well, how many flutes you have, oboes, clarinets, blah, blah, blah. So you'll have a, a, a page of, of lines, maybe, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 different lines of music. So the, they all have their own part, and they're, they're lined up that way in terms of rhythm. So you can look at it that way and see the kind of sweep of things, or you can look that way and see what the chord is, what the, what the, the harmony is, or whatever. So, and just over time, stare at it, fall asleep a bit, wake up again, realize that you should be working and not falling asleep. And, and just by osmosis, some, some pieces take a very long time to learn. Do you find you need a special pep talk for your musicians when you start certain pieces? Or? Uh, n- no, no. Uh, some composers feel they need to do that, I have to say. We've had composers come in and, and tell the orchestra how important it is that they play the piece really well. And, uh, and as if they're not going to, um, tr- you know, explain why it was so difficult to write and, and how, how much meaning there is in the music. But, you know, the orchestra aren't easily fooled by that. You know, the music is the music, and uh, if it's good music, it comes out anyway, I think. Great. Okay. Um, we'll move on. Uh, so what do you think that contemporary music brings to the cultural ballet or an organization like San Francisco Ballet that um, more familiar traditional music can't? Uh, what do, what's, what's special about having contemporary music well, on think, the ballet program? I think if there is a general thing about contemporary music, um, as time's gone on, as, as I was alluded to before, composers are always looking for new colors in the orchestra. You know, <clears throat> There are only so many ways of, of making a, a sound on the violin. You know, um, but there are instruments people composers bring into the orchestra to to add color. So, for instance, John Adams uh, in Fearful Symmetries uses um, three samplers, keyboard samplers, which he programmed uh, different sounds on. So, one sampler is actually kind of like a, a drum kit, uh, but he's constantly changing the sounds that the, the sampler play. So. Uh, we call them patches, so there'll be 20 patches or so for one sampler. So throughout the, the piece, they'll, the, the, the player will change the patch and then come out with a different set of sounds. So that kind of adds a lot of color. Uh, other composers use a lot of percussion instruments, different percussion instruments. You'll see in Salome, uh, if you can get to see it, the, the percussionists play the bass drum in a very special way. Uh, normally, you hit it with a with a with a, a stick, and and some way and some part of it, he's asked to drop a chain onto it, so it has a really different, really f- ominous feel to it. Uh, all sorts of different ways. So, as uh, composers have kind of tried very hard to come up with new sounds, and, and percussion is a, a big one that do that. Pianos didn't used to be in orchestras; they're often in now. Celeste, things like that. Um, so, uh, yeah. Was, and what about? Um, Electronic music um, in tandem with traditional acoustic instruments. Uh, that's probably a well. John Adam, John that, yeah. John Adams does do that a little bit. We don't. We obviously here we tend to play um, orchestral stuff, and uh, there's only so much you can do with electronic music live because we don't have the, te- the, the 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 kind of the wherewithal the technology here to do that. Um, uh, but yeah, there's a, a lot of composers use that. The, the dancers, uh, the choreographers 
again, they're looking for new sounds to, for their own mind to create new works, new, new dance works. So I think that's why a lot of choreographers are drawn to contemporary music because the, for, for them, the, the language of, 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 of Tchaikovsky has said everything, right. in his, in a, especially with Balanchine. He kind of, what hadn't been done, Balanchine then did. And so that, for them, I think it's very hard to come up with something new. Not to say that someone couldn't do that. There's, pl- right. there's plenty of Tchaikovsky out there that was never choreographed and would be beautiful. But, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself if, if, if Mozart was living today and he wrote Symphony Number no. 42... Would, yeah. would we be that interested in it compared to something else? Because we've heard that language now. We're looking for something new. Right. Great. Well, let's move on to tonight's program, um, talk about um, each ballet in a little more detail. Fusion is um, leading off tonight. And the, this Fusion uses uh, music by two different composers, um, Graham Fitkin, who's um, British, and Raoul Dev Berman, um, a song um, arranged in an arrangement by Oswaldo Galioff. Um And about this ballet and its music, um, this is, you know, what we might call a combination score where you're fusing a few different musical idioms together. Um, so how do musicians and dancers contend with, you know, having disparate musical worlds going in and out and, you know, transitioning between those different modes? Like, this is a really interesting one, Fusion, because uh, it really is lots of different pieces. And you'll see in the pit, there's not many musicians involved in this. It's quite a small group of musicians to play this. <clears throat> and uh, I remember when v- Yuri Posakov was uh, creating the ballet, you know, he came with one piece of, of Fitkin and wanted to do another piece, and he had this other idea of having the whirling dervishes, and, and he came up with this uh, it's really brilliant, actually, arrangement of... Uh, of uh, Tonight is the Night. It's from a, a Bollywood film uh, sung by Ashla Bosler. And, um, and it's a, arranged for the Kronos Quartet. And it has a tabla player. Tabla is Indian drums, which you'll see. It's a very rare visitor to the, uh, to the opera house. We have a wonderful tabla player who lives in the East Bay, Jim Santi Owen, who's, who's, who comes and plays with us. And uh, I think... Uh, it, it's just a testament to Yuri's creative genius that he could even think of putting that with the piece that comes next, Hard Fairy, which is absolutely totally out of this world. And uh, and uh, it was an interesting... Um, I, remember, I really remember very clearly when he worked in the first day to, to those eight dancers and the people in the back said, right, I have no idea what I'm going to do here. <laughs> I said, okay, you stand, but he had there, the, you stand there. But he had some music in mind. He had the music in mind, and then he, then he just worked through it. And then, uh, so the th- I think the first thing he choreographed was the hard fairy bit, the, uh, the, 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 uh, not after the whirling dervishes, and then he did that later. And uh, I, I don't know how, you'd have to ask the dancers how they feel about doing the different thing. I think the whole point was Yuri's, Concept was the whirling dervishes were kind of mentors to the the classical dancers, and not that they t- teach them the steps, but they kind of they 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 work together through their own yeah. feelings. Well, you know these debates about you know you can't dance to that. I mean that's been a an issue forever. I know that when people started dancing to Bach initially, people said you can't dance to Bach and. Critic, all the choreographers said, "Well, I did it, so obviously you can." Well, you can dance to anything, can't you? I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. It's yeah. uh, everybody dances to everything, don't yeah. they? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, Bach. Most of what Bach wrote was either a dance suite or a 
a, 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 a religious work. So it's rubbish to say you can't dance to it. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, it's uh, also about fusion. Um, I know there's a special story behind the ending of this ballet and the music and how um, there's a sort of literal fusion that happened. Could you tell us about how yeah. that came to be <laughs> that was and, and what we should listen for? And, um, well, so, um, so the, the, the order of the events is you start off with this, this Bollywood song and then we go into this really jazzy piece for uh, the sax and two pianos, a uh, wonderful piece called Hard Fairy, and a beautiful then serene piano solo. And another piece for ensemble, by Fitkin, which is pretty jazzy. And, and Yuri had done all this and then needed to finish off the ballet. There was no end to the ballet as such there. And so he, he knew that he needed to have some sort of closure. And uh, he, he went back and forth about um, whether to return to the Bollywood song and sort of wrap it all up in that way or to maybe come back to the ending of the hard ferry, which he'd missed out. He'd only, he'd only done a certain portion of the hard ferry. And, uh, or doing, trying to do, finding another piece by Fitkin to sort of fit it all in. And he was having a hard time. And then it suddenly occurred to me that this, the, the two pieces, the hard ferry, the end of the hard ferry, and the Bollywood song shared a lot in common. They were more or less the same speed. They were actually in the same key. Uh, they had almost the same bass line. So I just, for fun... Uh, loaded them up onto my computer. Did a mashup. <laughs> well, I put learned, lo, uh, loaded them onto my computer and just uh, speed, sped one up a tiny bit to make it match and just played them together and see what happened. And it actually, I thought, oh, this is going to work quite well. So uh, we asked for permission from, from, from Graham Fitkin to, uh, would you mind if we kind of just mashed it all up and just made something up? And he was fine about it. So we basically then played two pieces at once. So the uh, uh, and they work pretty well together, and uh, so and it was a nice idea that, that the the dance styles had come together and be fused. And in fact, that, that was the name. That was how the name of the ballet came after the event. I remember Yuri running out of the opera house, uh, saying, "Oh, I, I need name need name for ballet. Uh, you know, um, that they need to print it like today." And I said, well, I don't know, what, why don't you call it fusion? You fuse two Perfect. pieces of music. And he goes, oh, what is fusion? Is that, is that what you, you know, like a cup of tea? I said, no, that's an infusion. <laughs> then, he said, then he said, oh, fusion, that's great. Okay, we're calling it fusion. So okay. that's my one and only claim to fame is I'm named a ballet. So that's, <laughs> that's great, yeah, fantastic. Um, well, let's move on to Salome, um, which is, um, I can't wait to see tonight. Um, um, I, I wanted to pull up one of my favorite scholarly tools is a Google image, image search, um, which just always can remind you of how many different ways certain things have been interpreted. So just to search for Salome, you could scroll for hours and hours and find Salome. I guess there's a telenovela about Salome. There's paintings, operas, dance. Um, so Salome is this big topic. Um, and even if you narrow it down to Salome dance, obviously dance is at the heart of the Salome story. Um, there's a, so I, I, I guess I want to ask you, there's um, a lot to contend with um, tackling the subject of Salome. And um, for this particular Salome, our composer is uh, Frank Moon, another living composer. Um, so with Salome, um, and the choreographer has termed this uh, version of Salome dance theater. It's heavily inspired by the Oscar Wilde play about Salome. 
Um, and, you know, it's, so it's different from also inspired by previous Salome's. So what would you say is most distinctive about this version of Salome? I know a lot of us are probably familiar with the Richard Strauss opera as well. Um, and, you know, on a musical level, what, what should we listen for in this Salome tonight? Uh, well, I don't want to give too much away about the, the, the ballet. I think you should just watch it. It's, it is it's completely different. Uh, Arthur's take on it is, is, you know, his own vision and totally different than pretty much anything else. Um, there are, you know, he changes the, in, in the Richard Strauss opera, there's the, the Dance of the Seven Veils. It's a very famous piece of music, which is often played out of context, just, you know, as an orchestral piece. And uh, I think, I don't know if that was what inspired Arthur. I know he talked about that. Uh, when, he, when I met him last year, uh, he originally was thinking about the subject of Salome and maybe thinking of using um, um, <coughs> um, uh, La Valse by, uh, by Ravel, which has a sort of demonic feel to it. And, uh, but he couldn't really work out how that could work. And then, then he talked about maybe getting someone else to expand it. And then he went away from that and decided to ask Frank Moon uh, to compose a score for him. I think that kind of worked much better because uh, Arthur's view of what he was doing was quite specific. So then Arthur and Frank got together and uh, Arthur basically gave him the libretto about what he was going to do. Um, And... uh, Frank came up with a great score. I think um, it's very different. Talking about can you dance to it, it's not really danceable music. Uh, and I don't consider it to be, uh, and I don't mean with any disrespect, I don't consider it kind of a piece of music. I, I consider it more as a commentary on the dance theater itself. It's more like uh, if the underlying film music that you might get during a scene, you know, in a, uh, in a scary movie, you don't realize how much the music is heightening the tension and then you suddenly release attention by just a simple chord or just suddenly stopping the music and all those things. And um, it's not formulaic in any sense, but it, it, it is very much a, a commentary on what's on stage as opposed to something that the dancers are, are really dancing to, although they do dance to some of the music. It's just, but a lot of it is, is very atmospheric. You know, the first few, few minutes is just block eerie chords just going with the scene that's arriving. So... Um, so does that require even more rehearsal to kind of make sure you're really in sync with the action? Or um, Well, I think, no, because uh, in that case, the, it is, it's a little nebulous. So the, the action is just kind of following. The dancers have their own sense of where we are. Um, and then when the dance starts, then, then it's kind of, I go back into little ballet mode kind of thing. So this is this bit. I have to get this bit right. I have to cue this. There's plenty of cueing. If you've seen the ballet, you realize there's lots of, things happen on stage which I have to wait for and wait for things to happen but um, okay. I mean Frank so I, I want to talk a little about score because it's very clever Th- you asked about what to listen for and you probably can't hear it so much but I, it, what I love about Frank was uh, he worked really hard with Arthur to, to um, match the story that Arthur was telling so and then Arthur would choreograph it to the music that Arthur had made on a MIDI f- file and then uh, Frank was here while it was being choreographed. And uh, as they went along, they realized that one bit was too short, this was too long, they couldn't quite hear this, we needed a bit more of this or that, they needed something a bit ominous here. And Frank was continually writing as they, Arthur was uh, choreographing. So the piece wasn't finished until after Arthur had left the country. And then uh, Frank went away <coughs> and finished off the orchestration 
and he, we realized that you know the dancers were listening for certain aspects which weren't going to be easy to hear in the in the in the orchestra so he would add certain lines into different uh, parts in the orchestra so they could be more prominent for the for the dancers things like that and uh, it so that that was a very fascinating experience because that doesn't often happen, you know, having it done simultaneously like that. Yeah. And the music itself is very clever. So he, he took inspiration from a few things. Well, the number seven, you know, the seven veil, the dance of the seven veils. So in the music, a lot of the music is in seven time, which is very rare for music. It's usually in four or three or possibly, you know. Maybe maybe five. Maybe five, but usually multiples of, of, t- of t- t- you know, twos or threes, but not seven. So a lot of the, a, a big chunk of the ballet is, is uh, in seven, which is an interesting number to, to, to rhythm. You can feel it quite, uh, quite strongly. And then uh, there's a lot of sevenths, major sevenths. The chords are based on the sevenths and their inversion, the ninth. So the, um, a lot of the chords are kind of based on that. And then, even on a, even another level, which is completely irrelevant for the audience listening, but the metronome marks, which are the, how fast the music go, uh, are often multiples of seven as well. So that you know that they're all related in tempo wise. So okay. it, it, there's a lot of the sort of hidden stuff, well, which da, well, da, da Vinci Code kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hidden thing. Um, great. Um, yeah, and you already alluded to this, but this was a very collaborative process, um, how the music and the choreography were created. Um, you know, when you're conducting, can, can you hear a difference in a score that, was, that you know is created that way? Or, um, well, or I know. Or maybe I, see I, anything in the choreography? Yeah, well, the, I mean, a lot of the things were written, you know, so there's a great bit where uh, Sal- Salome takes a drink. It's, it's the, I don't, the drug drink where she kind of falls into a stupor. And uh, there's, there's immediately he, she drinks the, the drink, which is clearly marked and in the score, and I have to try and line it up with her. And as soon as she drinks it, the music starts becoming blurry. It's really, you listen out for it. So all the lines that you hear get repeated in canon and a little bit later. So it's like she's seeing everything in double or triple vision. So your little tune, so it's all like winding down, all this really blurry stuff comes out. And that was specifically because it was to reflect the fact that she was going into this sort of drug to stupor. So yeah, you can hear that very clearly. That would not have been written like that probably had it not been for the story. Yeah, and that is the advantage of that, you know, movie music model where you're like, okay, we have 30 seconds and this is happening and let's... A little bit that. I mean, I think, I mean, even Sleeping Beauty, you know, was written that way. You know, Petipur asked Tchaikovsky, okay, I need, I need 32 counts of, of fast music followed by this and that and I need that, this and that. And Tchaikovsky, you know, did a pretty good job of making some good music out of that. So. Yeah, so everything old is new again, right? Um, um, so moving on to uh, Fearful Symmetries, which we already alluded to a little bit, um, Liam Scarlett's choreography um, and John Adams, uh, the composer. Um, this is, um, again, back to our previous question about what counts as contemporary. The score is from 1988, so we could argue about what's still contemporary. It's, it's the oldest piece in the, in the, in the evening. Actually. There we go. It's like ancient music, <laughs> right. Um, you can perform it on period instruments, hopefully. Right? Um, <laughs> Those period uh, synthesizers. Actually, you say, well, interesting you say that because he, in the score, says a specific type of synthesizer, which you can't buy anymore. So, yeah, you have to, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it would be period. Yeah, this is, we're going to be playing on period MacBooks in 20 years, so 
save your, save your computers. Um, so obviously John Adams, he has a very special relationship to the Bay Area, a very iconic Bay Area composer. Um, and I'm sure you've had previous experience with conducting his music. And, you know, what is, what's special about this score? What's exemplary of Adam's style? What's maybe distinctive about it? Uh, yeah, I, well, I first did a piece of, of John's for ballet back in England in another 2000 or something. And but I first met him, I think, pretty sure, yeah, in 2008 when we did our New Works Festival. And Mark Morris, we, we co-commissioned a piece from him. And uh, it was, uh, we, uh, turns out to be Son of Chamber Symphony and Mark choreographed Jory Ride. I don't know if anybody, if anybody remembers that. Uh, and that was a great experience for me. I, I, John was there, I got to work with him. He conducted a couple of the, the first shows and I also conducted in rehearsal for him. So to get him to see, to working with the art musicians. Did he give a speech to the orchestra before? No, he didn't give a speech. No, he, <laughs> he said it was nice to be back. Yeah, he, he's, he's been, he knows a lot of the players, of course, because he's been in the Bay Area for a long time. So, uh, um, so um, since then, we've done a number of works. I, I think now I, I must have done four or five works of his. Uh, he's very popular with dance, with choreographers, uh, because of his music is quite driving. It's quite rhythmical. Um, Fearful Symmetries is especially popular because, as 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 the name suggests, and John also says that that it's it's almost metronomic and it's well for him it's metronomic and it's, it's regularity eight bar eight beat phrases or four uh, four or eights or twos or whatever and the the harmonies are very kind of changing metronomically so there's nothing too complicated about it so, so it's easy for choreographers to, to latch onto and uh, it, it, even though John says that it's not that at all it's not like it's not that symmetrical in many ways it's very complicated okay. and uh, he has he has lots of things going on and he has this incredible ability to start off with something very simple just a chugging and you think it's going on forever and then without you noticing he just brings in little things on the side he calls it um traveling music it's almost like you're flying over a, sort of a cityscape and you you're in your own little world, then you see something new, and then suddenly you realize you're in a, a different kind of area of town. You're seeing something different, but you, d- you didn't really realize that you'd changed. It's like walking from the Tenderloin into Union Square. You don't realize suddenly, oh, wait, you're in a different city now, and you've only gone two blocks. But he does it so magically, so quickly, that, uh, that everything, the landscape's changing all the time. Do you, do you feel like you have to have a different conductor persona to do something like fearful symmetries which you know minimalism it's it's almost like you're a traffic cop you're like really trying to regulate things sure. as opposed yeah. to sweeping crescendos or things you know it's it's it builds very subtly it, it, it is it's very different uh, I, I i always joke john's pieces take me about five or ten times longer per minute to learn than than you know a piece of tchaikovsky or something wow it it, it when, when you're brought up in a certain language, you know, reading a piece of Tchaikovsky is, is it's like reading a book to me. You know, it's there. You recognize the words quite quickly. Whereas you get a, uh, one, of, one of John's pieces or, or a lot of contemporary stuff, but especially John's, is really complex, lots of stuff going on. He changes the meter all the time. So what looks like something completely different could be actually the same speed, but he's just changed what he's doing in order to accommodate something else, having something else written out in a different way. So... 
and, or it could be the other way. It could be that it looks the same, but it, it, it's totally different. And it, it, it's very complicated to get used to and takes a long time to get into your body, into your mind. Yeah, I have to say, I, I got the score out to listen to it. And you would think like, oh, it's really easy to just follow along, but... Oh, it's actually really hard to follow <laughs> along. Yeah. And then um, it is, it is, it's, it's very uh, um, demanding in the sense that it has to be very accurate so all music has to be accurate of course but like you say uh, in a Tchaikovsky score you can you can change how you phrase it and the, and the violins can all go with it and they can hear you and then they can follow and then the uh, the basses can listen to them finish their phrase and just put the note in very gently with the end whereas in a piece like this it, it, it you've got so much going on it's like having a juggernaut just going, 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 and no one's going to move, you know. So if you if you out of place, you know, if a wheel comes off the place, it, the, the whole thing falls over, and it really it can do. And we rehearse very carefully to make sure that doesn't happen, you know, because uh, it, it's, it's, there's so much momentum, and it only takes a tiny bit for one section to change their momentum because just just naturally, you know, something that they're playing would have a certain way of playing it. If it doesn't line up, then the whole thing falls apart. So it, you are kind of a traffic cop, but also trying to—we're still giving music. It's a, you know, it's a very yeah. musical piece as well. Yeah. Um, well, and finally, um, I think what's also interesting about *Fearful Symmetry* is it was not composed as a ballet score. Um, in that respect, it's in very good company. A lot of um, a lot of music has been taken up by choreographers. That was originally written for the concert hall, and vice versa. Um, you know. I always like to remind people at the symphony that Rite of Spring was a ballet before it was an orchestral staple. Um, but, you know, do you think that there are any works or composers out there that you would love to see as a ballet that they've been overlooked? I know Balanchine famously said that Beethoven was unchoreographable. Um, or do you think there are any that, you know, we should leave well alone? And, I mean, obviously choreographers can do whatever they want. But I, I wouldn't say you have to leave any alone. I, I, I do think sometimes choreographers make mistakes, you know, and, and try and do a certain type of ballet to, uh, you know, the wrong type of music. I'm not mentioning any names. But um, as in, in terms of who, who should be choreographed, I'd, most, I think most composers had something done to them, haven't they? Um, there's one piece I would love to see choreographed, which is a piece that uh, we recorded with the orchestra a couple of years ago uh, by Kip Winger um, called Conversations with Nijinsky. Now, Kip wrote um, the music for Christopher Wilden's Ghosts, which we performed a lot. And uh, he, he also wrote this, this piece uh, for full orchestra. And uh, it was, it's, it's a great piece. And we just... Kip got nominated for a Grammy for it. It's a great piece, and he desperately wants to see it choreographed. And because it's very dear to my heart, I'd like to see it choreographed too. Um, uh, it's a, it's kind of a d- description of how he thinks a conversation with Nijinsky would go. You know, and as you probably know, Nijinsky kind of descended into madness by the end of his life. So it's kind of it's an interesting, wacky piece. And a, f- a full orchestra. Or yeah, full orchestra. Or? And, and but Kip was a is a rock musician, so it's very rhythmical. It has an with but a, a, an amazingly beautiful slow movement. It's perfect for ballet. You just have to find the right choreographer to okay. take it up. We'll put that out into the world. Yeah, yeah. Spread oh no, I do. Uh, <laughs> I do. I do. Oh. Um. Well, great. I think we, um, we can move into some audience questions. If anyone wants to come to the microphone, we have a um, decent amount of time. Yes, and if you could introduce yourself, uh, tell us your name and where you're coming from. Uh, Pat Baker, and I've been a season holder for a long time, and I originally ushered 
<laughs> when I worked a long time ago. Um, but I think you mentioned a term that I'm not familiar with. I may have gotten it wrong, but it was MIDI files. And it seems to be some type of maybe a simplified or shortened music that you can... Can you describe that yeah, for us? It, it, yeah, so a MIDI file, is it, is it an acronym for something? I'm not sure. So um, I think it is. But. Yeah, it's an acronym for something, uh, which I, I don't know what it is. Something, no, I don't know. But uh, so I'll give you an example of how I see the, the MIDI file I'm talking about is. So <clears throat> when composers write uh, some music, uh, nowadays they often write it on computer programs. So they'll write the, the, the notes of the oboe player on their stave and you know, the cello player. And within the, the, the computer is a sound card with, with mock-ups of the sound of that particular instrument. And, so, and then the computer will make a, a, a file, make it basically a recording out of saying, well, if the oboe is playing an A, it's going to sound like... And then the cellos are playing something else, it's going to go... And they put them all together and makes a kind of a mock-up of the score. So a MIDI, a MIDI file in that sense. Um, it's sort of like producing a very rudimentary synthesizer version of a score. So you can get a, an idea of if there's something... I wonder if uh, probably Kevin knows who's sitting in the, in, the, in the... See if I can get the answer by the end. Yeah. But it's, 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 a, it's a way of, of transferring information to do with music from computer to, to, to a, a sound box. My name is Gil Berkeley. I'm from Lafayette in the East Bay. Um, can you tell us or tell me what the difference is or the different skill sets involved in conducting a symphony orchestra versus a ballet orchestra? Um, well, you need the, all the skills that you need to conduct a symphony orchestra. It is a symphony orchestra. We have a symphony orchestra in the, in the pit. So all those skills you need to conduct a symphony orchestra are there. Um, one thing you do need to conduct a symphony orchestra is a good smile because the, the audience see you a lot more than you do um, and a lot of fantastic gestures to make yourself look good. Whereas in the pit, we have to actually do a job which is uh, much more focused on doing a job for someone else. We're creating music in its own sense, but uh, we're, we're bound a little bit by the nature of the dance. So, you know, the dancers have a lot to do and very difficult steps sometimes. And only, the, the only way to do that is, is certain speed. You know, if you jump in the air, it, it, you can only spend so long in the air before you come down. You know, you can only turn at certain speeds. So if the choreographer has asked the dancers to do certain things, uh, there's that you can't just suddenly charge off with the music and decide that you want to play it really fast, really slow, or whatever, because you happen to enjoy it that night. Uh, you know, you, you, so you, you're, you're more strictly bounded. Uh, not to say that you're always exactly on the mark. Sometimes you have to be on, exactly on the mark, but more often than not, you, you have this sort of a, a road which you go along. I suppose if you're conducting a symphony orchestra, you have a sort of slightly you have a freeway where you can go across all the lanes as much as you like. Whereas in Bali, sometimes you're bound by sort of a single track road, perhaps, you know. Is that, is that a good answer? But the actual mechanics of conducting the orchestra, rehearsing the music is exactly the same. No one else? Well, if no one else has a question. Oh, no, go ahead. Sandy Covell, San Francisco. Uh, a couple of questions. In Frankenstein, um, which was fabulous, and I'd love to hear you talk a little about that music, which sounded really difficult to me for the orchestra, 
But um, the pit was lowered. And I know the idea was not to be reflecting light up on the stage, which was almost always very dark. Um, and I noticed at the beginning of this run, the pit is still lower, although I think it's a little higher than it was. And I wondered, um, some musicians like it, some don't, okay. But I wondered who will make the decision going forward if it gets back up to the level that it has always been or if it stays lower. So Frankenstein and then that question. Okay, uh, well, uh, Frankenstein, um, Frankenstein was very difficult. It is, it is extremely challenging. It's very, uh, uh, that was written by Lowell Lieberman. There's another contemporary score written exactly almost like a, uh, like Sleeping Beauty, you know, to a specific libretto and, and uh, a beautiful score by Lowell. Uh, it, it, it was it's, it's, it was extremely difficult and it was very um, exposed. If you notice, it's not it wasn't rich and plush all the time. So the, especially the especially the violins had really exposed writing. They did a fantastic, wonderful job. Uh, they worked really hard to make sure it's all in tune every night, and uh, uh, they did a great job. So you're right. So we used to be, uh, let's say we we were at level X. Uh, and when we had our first rehearsal with the with the orchestra and stage for Frankenstein, the 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 light from the pit was was bleeding more than they wanted, should we say, onto the scrim at the beginning, especially the beginning where there's the um, where the skull was rotating and, and it wasn't very clear. So <clears throat> they they were trying to get rid of the, the as much light as they could, and they talked about putting a, a, a pit a cover over the pit, which we're very much against as musicians. It makes it very difficult for us to play and totally would change the sound. So we looked for a compromise and we said, well, let's just try putting the pit down. We we didn't necessarily want to do that because uh, in as the pit, if, it's, if the pit is very low, then the sound just reverberates between the two walls and becomes a little loud for the players. But we so we but we tried it anyway because we wanted to you know help the ballet and we said we'd try it and it turned out to be not so bad actually you know and uh, a number of people who were there for the rehearsals and saw the, heard the difference said actually the orchestra sounded better that way it sounded bigger and richer especially Lowell Lieberman was said well you should keep it like this is this is way better and uh, in some ways it is better when we're performing because it's a little louder in the pit so we do hear each other quite well. And there's a little more um, what we call you know, a little wetness into the sound within the pit because it's more echoing between the two walls. Uh, so some of us like it. Uh, I'm, I don't, when I say us, I mean the orchestra. Cause I'm not going to necessarily say what I think. Uh, some people like it because of that. Some people don't like it because of that because it may be next to the wall and it's a little louder for them. Uh, no one likes playing in the pit anyway because it's always difficult to play in the pit. We have a, it must be, I think it's sort of 70, 80 feet from one end to the other. And uh, if you count the number of milliseconds between the time it takes for a triangle to hear in the piano, it, it's enough to put any musician off. You know, it's, it's you know, 45 milliseconds or something. It's a long time. So um, being, the, whole, the whole concept of a pit is a terrible idea anyway, but we have to live with it. Um, so... One of the one of the issues that was being two feet down was that uh, I couldn't really see the stage without being very high above the orchestra, which makes it difficult for me and the orchestra. So that wasn't really great. 
And we got away with it in Frankenstein because there's not much footwork to be seen. There was no real dancing cues that I was looking at that I needed to be able to see that clearly. So we, that was fine. But when we got to this program, I knew that wasn't going to work. I didn't, I didn't want to give up on the experiment completely. So we, we, I, I asked the crew guys if they could move it up six inches, see how that would work, so I can be six inches closer to the, uh, the, um, the orchestra. And we're, we're just testing it out. I mean, everything's... It's a great art form. Everything, some things can work this way. We may go back down for Cinderella, for instance, when the light... We, we're not sure yet. And as to who makes the decision, that's your final question. Very long answer, isn't it? Sorry. Um, whoever... That, we'll make the decision together, you know. Um, the, the orchestra will, will, will play like this a little longer, and then we'll, we'll get together and talk about the pros and cons, and, and uh, we'll, we'll see, you know. Do you, I ask you a question. Do you notice the difference in the sound of the orchestra with it being low? Thanks for listening to the Points of View podcast from San Francisco Ballet. For more podcasts, other uh, engagements, from the front row, I usually see from the front row. Please check out and I thought SF in Frankenstein, I did notice it, and it seemed more lush, more lush. Mm-hmm. Um, for fusion, it it's, transports me anywhere you play it, high or low. And so I'm not sure now. You know, well, well, fusion's not a good example because that's, that's piped out. That's all blended anyway okay. because of the nature of the piece. Everybody's mic'd up when it comes through the speakers. So uh, fusion isn't a good one to judge it on. Right. Um, okay. But it's very, very curious. Maybe we should have a questionnaire for the audience to see okay. what they think. But it, but it didn't sound... I know at the beginning when the orchestra was lower and several of the musicians were going, I hate this, I hate this. Um, I also think they like the ones up at the front, like to be able to see a little bit on the stage. Yeah, that was, that was a big controversy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well. Exactly. But it was, it was um, not muddy at all. They were worried that the sound would be muddy, and it wasn't. I didn't think. All right, well, we can all judge for ourselves tonight. Um, I, we'll let the audience have the last word. We're unfortunately out of time, but um, let's, let's thank Martin again for being with us today. Thank you.